Okay, good morning. We are in the book of Acts, Acts 4.13. Let's begin with prayer, and then I'll read the text. Thank you, dear Lord, that you've been so kind and gracious to us. Thank you for the opportunity to meet with our dear brothers and sisters and open up the scriptures and see what you've done and what you've said and what we can learn from every passage that, that we look at. May we believe what you said. May we apply it diligently to our lives. Give us grace, we ask, for that end. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Okay, here we are. Acts 4, 13 to 21. I'm going to read the text. 13 to 22, excuse me. I'm going to read the text from the Holman Christian Standard Bible. When they observed the boldness of Peter and John, and realized that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus. And since they saw the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in response. After they had ordered them to leave the Sanhedrin, they conferred among themselves, saying, What should we do with these men? For an obvious sign, evident to all who live in Jerusalem, has been done through them. And we cannot deny it. However, so this does not spread any further among the people, let's threaten them against speaking to anyone in this name again. So they called for them and ordered them not to preach or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you, or rather rather than to God, you decide. For we are unable to stop speaking what we have seen and heard. After threatening them further, they released them. They found no way to punish them because the people were all giving glory to God over what had been done. For the sign of healing had been performed on a man over 40 years old. So here was a beggar at the temple gate that people had seen throughout their lives who was lame And in accordance with Old Testament prophecy, God healed this man in the name of Jesus through the apostles. This was a sign that signified that Jesus is the Messiah. And the fact that it was so obvious and so public and the preaching that accompanied it about the resurrection of Christ had left them with no recourse in their minds, but to silence the apostles. Notice, well, here, let's just, let me get ahead of myself here. Let's go to verse 13. And when they had, when they observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and recognized that they'd have been with Jesus. Now, there's a theme here, and the theme that I see is boldness. 
And I'll tell you why I think it's a theme. I went ahead after I finished this lesson and started working on the next one as we continue on Acts, and I found an inclusio. What's an inclusio? Bookends. You got it. That set off a section with the same theme. Now, if you want to find the other bookend of this inclusio, turn to Acts 4.31. So 4.13 talks about the boldness of Peter and John. And 4.31, let me find it here. When they had prayed, this was after they have a prayer meeting, the place where they were assembled was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak God's message with boldness. There's our theme. They're bold in the gospel, and even under the threat of punishment, they pray for boldness, and God gives them boldness to speak the word of God. And just so you know where we're going, know this, that when the Holy Spirit comes upon us, as I've said before, one of the evidences is that we proclaim Christ. And what he gives us, whether we're formerly trained or not, is boldness in the gospel. And what would attack us would be a spirit of timidity or the fear of man. Now, we see here the apostles did not have the fear of man because even being threatened and arrested, they had boldness, and then they went and prayed for more boldness. So there's our inclusio. So by the time we get through these two sections, I'm... I hope I get it done in two weeks, but if I don't, that's okay. It's better that we learn than than I go fast. It's a better outcome. And boldness will be our theme. And the word for boldness is parousia. Let me get, I don't have my Greek out here. I should have had it. Oh, here it is. Parousia, parousia. Very important word in the Greek. It can be translated besides boldness. You could legitimately translate it confidence. Maybe some of your Bibles have that, confidence. Or it could be translated courage. It's good that we're grounded in the gospel and that we hear it over and over again and that we understand the implications of it because doing so will give us this courage and boldness so that we will not back down. Brian was telling me a story we drove together together today about trying to witness to his friends. And didn't somebody tell you not to say anything to him about Jesus? Yeah. Catholic uh, fella who has been a Catholic all his life got mad at me and told me not to ever talk to him about Jesus anymore. So... I found that interesting that somebody who claims to be a Christian wouldn't want to talk about Jesus when that's all we want to do. See, now, that's exactly what happened here in Acts. They were told not to preach about Jesus. 
How can you be a Christian and you don't want to hear about Jesus? Question about these inclusios. Yeah. <clears throat> and this is just curious as to way, the way you study. Are you looking for inclusios, or is there a tip-off of an I, inclusio? Well, in, in this case, I didn't read about it in any of my commentaries. And I had my Greek out for what our text today, which is 13 through 22. And then I got working on next week's already. And just looking at the Greek, I wouldn't call it an inclusio if there wasn't a common theme. Because it's very possible that a certain word is used here and then used here, but it's merely incidental. If everything in between wasn't about that theme, it wouldn't qualify as a valid inclusio. Now, you might say, well, that seems technical. How am I ever going to be able to see that? If you wrote a letter to somebody or even a short article, it's very common technique to introduce your theme at the beginning and then elaborate and at the end, you know, say your theme again. Some In homiletics, they often say that's a good way to preach. Say what you're going to say, say it, and then say what you said. So there's your what an inclusio looks like. Now, I haven't seen any of the commentators say that that's what this is, so... This is according to Bob, so if you don't want to believe it, I won't feel bad. <laughs> Judge for yourselves. But I think boldness is a theme, not only here, but throughout the Gospels. And, for example, in, well, I already mentioned this, verse 31 in chapter 4, but in Acts 14, let me just read to you 1 through 3. In Iconium... They entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed, both of Jews and Greeks. But the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. Verse 3, Acts 14, 3. Therefore, they decided to shut up. No, it doesn't say that, does it? Therefore, well, we better switch messages. We're getting a lot of pushback here. No, they weren't politicians. They were gospel preachers. Therefore, they spent a long time there speaking boldly. There's our word, parousia, with reliance upon the Lord, who was testifying to the word of his grace. Notice there. Well, I don't have it up on the screen. 14.3, word of his grace is another way of saying gospel of grace. Okay. Granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. This validated that they were apostles of Jesus. And they should listen to him just as like they should have listened to Jesus. So when there was pushback, God granted them boldness to preach the gospel. Now, how do you know? Okay, you might think, well, this just isn't working and people are always angry with me. But if you think of Stephen in Acts 7 and the boldness with which he preached the gospel that cost him his life, he was martyred. 
You might think, well, not much came of that. They just got angry. Maybe he should try some different way. There was a certain person that heard Stephen. That was Saul of Tarsus. And he heard the gospel. And two chapters later, he was confronted by Christ himself, became a Christian. And he himself became bold in the gospel. Yes, uh, Brian. Generally speaking, if they're angry, it's working. Maybe, maybe. (laughs) Sometimes that's true, although I would caution um, they might be angry just because we're in the flesh. Okay? Just because somebody's angry with me, Rich, doesn't prove I'm right. It could prove I'm just kind of a jerk. And another nuance that is interesting is that they heard by a man, he heard by a man, but to become saved, you got to hear from God. It's written in the prophets, they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone has heard and learned from God. Yeah, the inner call. Right. See, the external call, they all hear because it's carried over, unless they're deaf, it's carried over sound waves to ears. External call. The internal call is heard in the heart. And they're convicted by the Holy Spirit concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. And then they respond in faith. Okay? So we can preach all we want and we're supposed to. That's a good thing. But until God grabs a hold of them and shakes them around a little bit, that's where it... That's what happened with Saul of Tarsus. He uh, he heard the gospel through Peter, uh, excuse me, through Stephen. But he didn't listen. Someplace else in Acts it says that they how they responded with sneering, and some responded with belief, and others said, we want to hear this again Several later. times. One of them was in Acts 17, the Athenian philosophers. They mocked him when he preached on the resurrection from the dead. Now, notice here, they observed boldness of Peter and John. And then this is intriguing, okay? They realized they were uneducated and untrained. So you might think, how could these people have this kind of boldness without a formal rabbinic education? They weren't disciples of some rabbi, famous one like Shammai or Hillel. And that's how you got your education. You became a disciple of a rabbi like Paul had been. How could they have this boldness when they're uneducated and untrained? And then it says, well, they recognized they'd been with Jesus. Aha. Now, this is important. Back in the 80s, when I first started deciding that it would be good to try to help the larger church with some of these issues, and I started by having a pastor's meeting and writing articles and giving them to these pastors, most of whom were charismatic, the pushback I got was that it's a bad thing to be educated. Sort of an anti-scholastic bias. If you're educated, that'll quench the Holy Spirit. And they were using this to justify that idea, this verse. They were saying, see, if you really want God to heal people, you've got to be bold in the Spirit, but education will quench the Spirit. The letter kills. Remember that verse? Spirit gives life. That's, and that's what they quoted. Now, 
I thought, okay, I don't think that's right, but let me explore this matter. So that's when I went into the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament and looked up Mathetes, disciples, and studied the, what the Jews believed was a good education and why it was important to them. And I think that, and then I came up with a rebuttal, I think it follows from the text. When it says here that they were amazed and recognized they had been with Jesus, these guys were, the apostles were able to refute the Jewish leaders using scripture. And they had been trained by Jesus for three years. That would be a good education. All right? Far from being ignorant and endorsing the idea that ignorance is bliss, they had the finest education anyone had ever gotten. Three years directly under the creator of the universe. Would you sign up for that education? You think that's better than three years at Bethel Seminary? <laughs> Eric, I know he said, so we, got, we got into trouble over there because we weren't happy with the education system. And then we find out later that Paul, though he'd been trained, uh, I think under, who, who was it, G- Gamaliel? He was in Damascus and then went to Arabia and was actually trained, we believe, by Jesus for three years. So he got the same education these guys did. Wow. So they're bold. They can refute the scholars. They seem uneducated, untrained, but they've been with Jesus. Maybe that's why they're like that. If you want to turn with me to John 7, 15. And then we'll look at some things in John here. Well, I'm going to just look at that one verse, I guess, here, looking at my nose. We'll look at some of the interactions Jesus had with the trained scribes and scholars. John 7, 15. The Jews then were astonished. There's a word that's used in the Gospels for the mighty works of God. Same words used here in Acts 4, 13, amazed or astonished. They were astonished, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? So they questioned whether Jesus had anything to say. How does he know all this stuff? He never had a formal rabbinical education. Well, he is God incarnate. Amen. And they'd been trained by Jesus. And they're able to refute trained scribes. Now, you might want to also turn here to Luke 20, 21 to 26. This is about Jesus. Amazed, by, as I said, it was a response to God's mighty works through Christ. John 20, 21, they questioned him saying, Teacher, we know that you speak the truth and teach correctly, and you are not partial to any but teach the way of God in truth now they were buttering him up okay because they wanted to trap him all right 
Is it lawful, verse 22, for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, this was a sore point. And good chance for Jesus to dig himself into a hole and to turn the people against him. And they wanted to hang him on the horns of a dilemma. Right? Verse 23, but he detected their trickery and said to them, Show me the denarius whose likeness inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were unable to catch him in a saying in the presence of the people and being amazed, there's our word, at his answer, they became silent. Who bears God's image? Human beings. Pay your taxes, but give yourself to God. You should serve God with your whole heart, mind, and soul, and so on. Wow. So, my dear friends, as we are being trained in the scriptures, filled with the Holy Spirit, we can expect that God will give us words of boldness when they're needed so that we can refute the adversaries because we've been with Jesus, not in the same sense that they were. Verse 14, And since they saw the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in response. Now, I read in Luke 20, remember? They had 20... 21 to 26, they went silent. Here they go silent again. They'd been with Jesus. God healed the sick like he did through Jesus. He did messianic signs through these apostles. They preached the resurrection of Christ. They didn't have anything to say. You might want to turn to Luke 21, 15. I have quite a few cross-references here. I have that one up here on the slide, just the reference. Luke twenty-one fifteen. For I will give you utterance and wisdom, which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. It's a promise of God. I love debates, maybe too much. My wife says I love to debate too much. <laughs> but I've been given a, the wonderful blessing to debate Greg Boyd, Doug Padgett, and others in a public setting. But I look at it as an opportunity to preach the gospel. And always did so at these public debates. I always preached the gospel, whatever else happened. Because I knew the followers of these other fellows would be there, and, and they may never hear the gospel any other time than if, if I preach it to them. So God will give us utterance and wisdom. It's a promise. Now it says in Titus 2, 7 and 8, I have that up here just as a reference. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds in purity, in doctrine, 
dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame having nothing bad to say about us. Our doctrine is true. Our speech is clear. The word of God is taught. And they may get mad and they may be upset about this or that, but it's not because we didn't clearly teach the truth. And if there's a violent reaction against the truth, that is to be expected. Sometimes the calmest people create the biggest ruckus in opposition to them. I've seen that throughout my life because it's the truth that they're responding to. Now, I mentioned this thing in John 7. In John 7, they purposely... Where am I here? Here we go. They purposely tried to catch Jesus. They sent some officers. John seven thirty two. They were going to seize him. We've got to do something about this Jesus. He's causing us trouble. Verse 40 of John 7. Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, this is certainly the prophet. That's John 7, 40. Who did they mean there? This is certainly the prophet. To what were they referring? It's amazing how well the Jews in the first century knew their scriptures. Well, I'll answer my own question. Deuteronomy 18, where Moses said, I will raise up a prophet like myself. You will listen to him. So they're wondering, maybe... This Jesus is the prophet that Moses spoke about. The prophet. Well, he was. Amen and is. Others were saying, verse 41, this is the Christ. Now they also see that maybe Messiah is right there in their midst. Still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? They were expecting something else. Verse 42, has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the descendants of David from Bethlehem? Well, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, wasn't he? And he was the descendant of David. The village where David was. So a division occurred in the crowd because of him. Actually, all these things are true. He is the prophet. He is the Christ. He did minister in Galilee. He did come from Nazareth. And he was born in Bethlehem. It's all true. There's no logical contradiction with any of this. Verse 44, some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. 45, the officers then came to the chief priest. Now, these were the guys sent to seize him. So they came to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. Then the Pharisees answered them, You have not also been led astray, have you? So they were very unhappy with these guys because they couldn't catch Jesus. But the crowd which does not know the law is a curse. So, The people followed Jesus 
And these self-righteous religious leaders are saying, well, this crowd is accursed anyhow. They can't know what's right. The irony is they did. He is the prophet, the Christ, and the son of David. Hallelujah. Well, what was that reference verse in Deuteronomy? 18, what? 9, 19? 18-something. 18.15. Now, I also have here listed Acts 28, 23 through 28. We're doing some reviews and previews here. Going back to the Gospels and then going forward in Acts. And, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes, Paul. Yeah, in James uh, chapter, uh, James, uh, starting at verse 19, it says we should be slow to speak and uh, part of yeah, slow to s- quick to listen and slow to speak, and it goes on about anger as well. And um, could you do a little comparison as to when you say truth silences in that we don't speak, but it may seem as though... Well, okay, let me explain the difference between the wrath of man and boldness in the gospel. The wrath of man happens when we see things more in a political way. It's our guys versus their guys. And we get really angry if it looks like we're losing, sort of more like a football game or, or some place where you get really angry, you know. Boldness in the gospel is something that we always are to have. The gospel always remains true. So boldness and confidence in the gospel and in the truth of the word isn't the same as the wrath of man. Okay? And so slow to speak would mean to listen carefully and understand what the issues are, but that doesn't mean when you do speak, you can't speak with boldness. Over here to Dan. Yeah, just the activity of silence itself doesn't necessarily mean that you're not standing on the rock and letting the turbulence around you happen and not say anything for the time being. And that's all I'm getting at, is that silence doesn't always indicate that you don't love what you're doing. It's just that you're waiting for the right time to the, for the Lord to use you and to move ahead. Yeah, well, with that we should do. The silence of which we spoke here would be once those people were refuted, they went silent because they, they couldn't win the argument. But yeah, that's a good point from James. Yes, Dan. I was just thinking in today's day, um, like, for instance, when Obama gets in front of a prayer breakfast and does, you know, he lectures the, the Christian crowd there about the Inquisition and the you know, the fact that we shouldn't get on our high horses and that type of thing. What do you think the role is of a, of a well, first of all, Obama claims to be a Christian. Should he be, um, I mean, he should be confessing Christ, and he should be, but as a leader of a pluralistic society, what, what do you think his proper response in a prayer breakfast like that? <laughs> well, remember what happened, what was it, a year ago when that Ben Carson spoke? Um, there was a calm guy who really spoke the truth and made a lot of people angry. But I think that the facts are very powerful things, okay? And that I've heard some people after that just lay out some basic facts. And for one thing, Jesus never, ever is teaching his followers to take vengeance. Remember Peter with his sword? 
But it says in the scriptures, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. So the crusades where Christians were taking their own vengeance, we could say is not God's idea. Now, these uh, followers of Allah have reason to believe that taking their vengeance is something God endorses or their God. And so there's a difference just in the difference between the scriptures and the Quran. Now, somebody who knows a lot about this and who is engaged in debate and discussion with Islam is James White. And at our old church, he spoke one time in the Sunday school about that topic. And I think we have people who can speak facts to correct these things. Now, do we get angry when we hear some of this going on? Yes. But I think the response needs to be carefully considered. Rick, because I don't think his remarks against the, the, uh, the fact that you know, Christians, so-called Christians that did these things in the name of Christ murdered all these people. That They weren't really Christians. That was Yeah, they weren't, they weren't following Jesus. Right. And I, the number is much more than 3,000, 4,000. It was millions, you know, multiple millions of people that were killed in the name of Christ. So he's got some legitimacy there, but he, in my mind, he needed to to say that was done in the name of Christianity, but we well, all yeah, know a lot of things should be done in the name of Christ. But I would also humbly remind the president that the USA did not exist in 1000 AD. So the liberals are always happy to make us have more guilt. I found that out at Bethel Seminary. They were always dumping guilt on us. You should feel guilty. You should feel very guilty. What did I do? You're a white Euro male. Okay, so I'm guilty. What am I going to do? Isn't that right, Eric? And so we got over and over, day after day. You know, go to the scripture and find out what is or isn't valid guilt. And what is or isn't a sin. And should I feel guilty because people did things a thousand years ago that were not endorsed by Christ. Well, maybe I'm just not sensitive, but I don't feel guilty. Okay. Uh, being so you brought up war, and uh, I, was, I was wondering, the Israelites, you know, they conquered a lot of nations. What do you think about that? Well, they had a, a, a prophet from God, Moses, that commanded them to do that. But our prophet from God, Jesus... Yeah says to not to do to take vengeance and his apostle paul said not to take vengeance vengeance is mine says the lord i'll repay and i would also say america is a geopolitical entity it isn't the church all right so in a sense we pay taxes and we here have a right to vote and influence to a certain extent what the nation does. Well, we shouldn't confuse America with the Christian church. Because if you do that, then you really muddy the waters. Yes? Yeah, the Inquisition was basically the Roman Catholic Church that basically was used um, as a way to um, 
stop the Protestant Reformation at the same time. And, well, yeah, uh, these things... And, and a lot of people don't realize that when we say the Inquisition, you're talking about the Roman Catholic Church, and they killed 50 million people, and uh, it was used for the Protestant Reformation in order to do it. It's certainly our responsibility to understand the teaching of Christ and his apostles so we can identify what it is that we should do or not do. Okay? And yes, I don't think we need to own everything that Roman Catholicism did as if it were us. Bob, to the uh, equivocation, uh, not to get political, but Dan brought it up, the equivocation of two wrongs, you know, making a right or justification for it is, you know, again, (laughs) ridiculous. Well, we need to pray for the civil authorities, be good citizens, pay our taxes, and be bold in the gospel and exercise what op- opportunities we have in the society we live in. Now, I've said this for years. These things came up back in the 80s. We had this pastor's meeting. And I pointed out that Paul did that. As a Roman citizen, he had a right to appeal to Caesar. So he exercised that. And that's how he ended up going to Rome and how the gospel spread to Rome. So I think that we have precedent for, besides paying our taxes and praying for the leaders, to exercise what options we have in the civil society we live in. I don't think it's a sin to do that. Let's get back on track. Acts 28, 23 through 28. This is Paul. Now, this is the very end of Acts. So it's important in the overall scheme of Luke Acts. 28, 23, when they had set a day for Paul, remember, he had appealed to Rome. He ended up there, and he was able to live there for a while. It's unclear at the end of Acts whether he lives or dies. Now, most scholars say he was released for yet one more missionary journey. That's another topic. They set a day for Paul. They came to his lodging in large numbers. And he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning till evening. So can you imagine, wouldn't you like to have been there to hear that? From morning to evening, the Apostle Paul was explaining Christ out of the Old Testament. Now, remember in Luke Acts, Luke 24, Jesus did this out in the road to Emmaus. So at the end of Luke, Jesus explains himself from, now that would be even a better place to be, from, from Moses and the prophets. And now at the end of Acts, Paul does this. What do we learn? Well, we should be really ready to do this. Some were being persuaded by the things spoken, but others would not believe. Isn't that kind of how it works? Others would not believe. When they did not agree with one another, they began leaving after Paul had spoken one parting word. 
The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your fathers, saying, Go to this people and say, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand, and you will keep on seeing, but not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, and with their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will also listen. Now, here is this dichotomy of response. Either hardened hearts that won't hear and will not listen and will not pay attention, and those who do. The ones who do are converted. They learn. They rejoice in Christ. They see these things as glorious truths, and they can't wait to hear more. It says somewhere in Acts, they were begging him to stay and teach more. When God converts you, he gives you a hunger for the truth. And you should really care. You know, the worst thing that I see is when Christians get hard-hearted, they won't listen even to sound evidence because they don't want to hear the truth. If you went to a doctor with a symptom of a physical malady, he'd get very alarmed if your physical malady was as bad as the spiritual malady of not wanting to hear what God said. It's a serious problem. It says in 1 Peter 2.15, For this is the will of God, that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. That's God's will. That we live and speak in such a way that these really bad ideas are silenced. Dear Lord, help us to be like that. Verses 15 and 16, Acts 4. After they had ordered them to leave the Sanhedrin, they conferred among themselves, saying, What should we do with these men? For an obvious sign, evident of all who live in Jerusalem, has been done through them, and we cannot deny it. Wow. It's amazing how angry people are over things that are true that they can't deny. We've had these Wednesday night worldview classes taught by various people here from the congregation. And they've been fabulous. And they've laid out the truth in a way that I don't think it can be denied. I think it's undeniable that God created the world out of nothing. So what kind of response does that get mockery somebody says God created a world out of nothing you're some kind of stupid ignorant fool that doesn't follow science because otherwise they'd believe in evolution is that how it goes but we should be encouraged the truth is the truth is the truth God did create the world out of nothing it's true Now, here we had 71 members of the Sanhedrin presided over by the high priest 
And they don't know what to do with these guys because the fellow who had been healed, the layman, was right there. Now he shows up in this narrative all the way along. There he is. What are we going to do? It reminds me of John 9. Remember the healing of the blind man in John 9? Oh, it's so fabulous. Because the blind man, who he really is ignorant and uneducated, he starts refuting the Pharisees and making them look like fools. Because he says, well, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But one thing I know is whereas before I was blind, now I can see. And they said, well, we're going to kick you out of the synagogue. That'll teach him. Verse 17. However, now here we get to the issue of motives. However, so this does not spread any further among the people. Let's threaten them against speaking to anyone in this name again. Wow. Now, I have pointed this section out when I've gotten into debates with those who teach the latter reign idea of the latter day apostles and prophets and their claim is unless we start doing signs and wonders that are greater than the ones done in Acts God's agenda won't go forward we've got to do signs and wonders no matter what and so they have their apostles and prophets holding signs and wonders meeting and whipping up the crowds into a frenzy. But when objective reporters have gone to look at the claims, nobody's healed. Now, do you remember Justin Peters? Yeah, he's fabulous. I I highly recommend Justin Peters. And if you haven't seen him, I get one of those DVDs that he's made. One of them, we shot one of them in our old church. But he said... If you're sick and need a miracle of healing, the worst place you could go is to a Benny Hinn meeting. (laughs) Because that's where for sure you won't be healed. Just people walking around that spontaneously get better have a higher rate than people who go to Benny Hinn. So... You want to hear Justin Peters. See, we shouldn't be afraid of the truth and of the facts. Now, it's undeniable, as far as I'm concerned, that the book of Acts is showing that the apostles had the very authority of Jesus Christ. And that the continuation of Christ's ministry went on through his chosen apostles. And notice here, and this is what I pointed out to some people who believed the Latter-day Apostles and Prophets movement, was healings are no threat to the religious establishment or the political establishment. In fact, they didn't say one word about them healing people. They said, don't speak to anyone in the name of Jesus. The threat to them and their little kingdom was Christ in the gospel, not healings. Go around and heal every lame man in Israel, fine. Just don't say anything about Jesus. Oh, yeah. So I think this disproves the claims of these people who say, we got to have healings or nobody's ever going to believe. 
No, we have to have gospel preaching. Now, Acts 5.28, just to show this is a repeated theme, saying, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. And yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Acts 5.28. What's the issue? The fact that they were the ones who said, crucify him, crucify him, who rejected their Messiah, who wanted him dead, wanted him beaten and crucified. And they don't want the blood guiltiness on their own heads that at one point in Matthew, now I'm, I realize I'm getting outside of Luke Acts, but did they not say, let his blood be on the heads of us and our children, our children's children? So they willingly accepted that blood guiltiness over Messiah. But here they say, well, no, you're not going to put that on us by your teaching. Acts 5.29, look at this. This might help us answer the question that was raised earlier about what to do with wicked teachings from our elected officials. 5.29, we must obey God rather than men says Peter. We're to submit to civil authorities and pay our taxes. But when they command us not to preach the gospel, we must obey God rather than men. There's a line there. They cannot tell us that we can't serve Christ. Many martyrs have happened throughout history when people were told they couldn't serve Christ. All the way back not only to the apostles, which certainly is a case in point, like Stephen, their associate, but Polycarp, for example, was martyred for refusing to listen to them when they wanted him to deny Christ. In fact, they said, just deny him. Have respect for your old age. Deny Christ. Save yourselves. It says Polycarp, according to this account, Eighty and six years have I served him, and I cannot deny him now. Thank you, Lord. Somebody asked, asked me yesterday, well, what about us? If we were ever in that kind of situation, would we deny Christ? And if we think about ourselves, we might think, I don't know. I don't know that I'm that courageous. But you know what? The Holy Spirit will give you the words. And the Holy Spirit will give you the boldness. You'll be shocked that you don't deny Christ. And that you'll soon be with him in glory. I told the story yesterday of this man when we were in a Bible study in the early 70s, probably about 75. And he was a very troubled Christian, full of a lot of self-doubt, not even sure a lot of times whether he was a real Christian, kept coming to Bible study. And uh, he worked at uh, an aluminum place over here in St. Louis Park with, back then had all these presses and forges and things that were dangerous. And he got his hand in there and it got crushed. And he went into shock and they had to haul him to the hospital, obviously. 
And he just was blacked out in shock. But he told us a story when he got well enough to come back to Bible study. He said, the nurses told me that when I was there at the hospital, I kept crying out to Jesus. Dear Jesus, help me. Dear Jesus, come to me. And he said in our Bible study, I didn't think I had that in me. I didn't think that there were, they, the nurses see people cursing God. Oh, yes. He said, Jesus, I need you. My dear friends, the Holy Spirit's working in your heart. And your worst, worst, worst day, or even if your life is threatened, out of your mouth will come the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in petition and praise, not cursing him. Yes. Another great example of that recently is the Columbine killings when these mm-hmm. young teenage girls, mm-hmm. in the face of guns pointing directly in their faces, uh, would not deny Christ. You would, you would, from our perspective, you would look at that and go, well, here's some teenage girls, you know, they, they're young, they have their whole lives in front of them. Why wouldn't they deny Christ in a situation like that? But they wouldn't. The they confess Christ. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. I want to encourage you. We're not here speaking of some super Christians. We're just speaking of sinners saved by grace. I qualify. And God may even use me. And I may stay faithful even when things are bad. Now, they were told, Peter said we should obey God rather than men. Acts 5.30, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus whom you had put to death by hanging him on the cross. Notice, Peter preaches the resurrection of Christ. Verse 31, he is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Wow. Not only did he shut up, not shut up like they wanted him to, He preached Christ to them right then and there. My dear friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, do you know that your sins are forgiven? If you're not sure, today I preach to you Jesus Christ, his resurrection, his blood atonement, his ascension to the right hand of the Father. And I declare to you that have faith in his name, that your sins are forgiven. Let's pray. Thank you, dear Lord, for the example of these ordinary men and how they proved to be bold and strong when threatened. We know that you can work even through us. Give us boldness, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.